Welcome, it's Leanne Scott from Chirp. Today I have Graham Barlow with me from Iversoft. Um, I'm delighted to have you, Graham, because I think you have a wealth of experience uh, to share with startup founders and to share loads of your journey, but also some insights into how to grow a startup in today's world. So welcome, and please tell us a little bit about who you are uh, and what your journey has been so far. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited we finally got a chance to do this. I know we've had lots of awesome conversation kind of leading up to this. As you mentioned, I've been a startup founder for a very long time, almost terrifyingly long at this point. I've been at this for coming up on 24 years. Um, today, I run a software development company called Ibersoft, where we build uh, mobile apps and uh, web platforms and, and tools for organizations all over the world. We've had the privilege of working with some of the kind of coolest, most progressive brands in the world, as well as critical infrastructure like healthcare tech and um, uh, drug shortage, supply tracking and information. Um, but before that, I got started in entrepreneurship a long time ago. Uh, actually, my first company was in the virtual currency space long before anybody called it virtual currencies or the even idea of crypto was a thing uh, because I built a company selling items from online games on the internet, uh, which was kind of early, early, early days of digital currencies. And looking back at it, it was kind of a crazy time to be doing it in kind of the early 2000s to 2006. But we built an entire business around selling items from online games like Diablo 1, Diablo 2, Neopets, Ultima Online, eventually World of Warcraft, um, and selling them effectively on the black market on eBay until we ended up selling and shutting down that company. Um, since then, I've had a pretty crazy journey. I tried to go to university, did not do super well on that track, got through about a semester and a half before I went running for the hills, um, ended up doing some marketing consulting, and then started a game development company called Rocket Owl, where we built games on Facebook uh, during the height of the kind of Zynga Farmville social gaming craze. Really cool. I ended up building a kind of social impact eco um, messaging game called Greenspace, where players all over the world got to kind of restore these little worlds with characters and through different actions in game support real world causes we did a whole reforestation effort we supported a number of endangered species game grew to over a million users and we ended up selling technology um, to an investment group from there spent a couple of years as an early stage investor in SaaS companies oversaw actually a small investment fund where we did kind of marketing acceleration as well as investment in the SaaS ecosystem. Uh, and after about three years of doing that, realized I really wanted to get my hands dirty again and back into the building side of things and joined Iversoft. And we've grown the team from a team of six or seven when I joined to over 50 today. And it's been a pretty, wow. pretty wild ride. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Amazing. So do you, are you still an active investor at the moment? Yeah, yeah. So we're we're very active uh pretty much across the across the board. I would say we're we're very small angel investor. We're not uh doing anything too too crazy. We have friends that are uh extremely active in the space, but we're we invest in a number of up and coming companies either personally or uh through some of our activities at Iversoft. We've um invested in and partnered with a number of our clients as they've gone through really exciting scale up. Um, I've also been kind of co-founder in a number of other companies throughout the past, probably.
probably 10 years helping uh, get different platforms launched. One that uh, I'm still really excited tracking is uh, ProPet Software, which is business management tools for the pet industry. Um, just often an unlooked or overlooked niche in the uh, uh, business world where providing business management tools for like groomers, dog walkers, kennels, rescues, um, massive industry, massive. And at the time that we got into it, eight or nine years ago, it was a very, very underserved market. And that's, to me, that's very representative of the type of stuff we tend to look for as in, when we're investing is we're looking for people that have strong technology foundation, but also find a really interesting niche where you're not trying to go up against a, a Facebook or I don't know, Reddit or something to conquer the whole internet, but you found a very, very meaningful use case to solve a, a strong pain point in a large industry. Amazing. Yeah. I must say I had never thought of uh, the pet industry for tech startups. And recently I came across two tech startups who were specifically targeting the pet industry. And I was absolutely flabbergasted because you just, I suppose you, you think of um, puppies and kitties and all of that <laughs> as non-tech. Um, so I was, I really was blown away. Um, and in terms of like where you invest, are you do you focus primarily on on the Americas or do you dabble in Europe? <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I think for the theme of this this podcast and conversation, uh, we've been almost exclusively in Canada, um, dabbling a little bit in the U.S. But I think there's there's a lot of underserved opportunities and great companies in the Canadian ecosystem and. I think similar, similar to the UK, early stage funding and even growth funding to some extent remain a pretty big challenge for companies scaling up outside of the US. And so being able to participate at an early stage or help open doors and make connections for people that are actively investing and moving um, the needle forward for companies like that is is a big part of where we try and get involved. Yeah. So in terms of, you know, early stage funding, we, we ourselves as CHIRP are, are very much early stage in our <laughs> journey. However, we have got some traction. And when I speak to fellow founders, there's always this, how early is too early? But then there's, there are um, startups who get funding basically with an idea on a PowerPoint. Um, and then you're like, but I'm further along on that journey. <laughs> so how do we get your attention? Like, wh what is it that makes it too early or early enough? Um, it, it always feels like a bit of an oxymoron that. <laughs> and I, I think the reality is it is. And, and it really depends on who you're talking to and what their risk profile is, what their knowledge of the space is. Um, I, I think one thing that's interesting being a little bit self-reflective, uh, I was one of those founders that like we raised 600,000 for our angel round for Rocket All game development company. And we had a pitch deck and a lot of ambition and a lot of drive that we were going to make this thing happen. And we raised that very quickly. Um, like I think start to finish our round closed in 60 days. Wow. And now a lot of that was due to a very diverse and very strong founding team. We ended up, uh, we started with six founders, um, ended up adjusting down to five uh, later on in the company, but a significant amount of operational experience, a number of exits, a number of kind of just a really strong portfolio across the team. And I would say that helped us then. And that's a big thing that I look for today when we're vetting opportunities is that track record, right? Like everyone, 
likes to tell the narrative of the kind of college dropout unicorn goes to a billion dollars. But I think when you actually dig into a lot of the data, the more consistent companies for delivery and execution are usually the second, third, fourth time founder that has learned a few things from the first time around and is coming at it a little bit more seasoned and a little bit more excited. Um, we typically don't bet on solopreneurs. Um, that's more personal thing. Every, every company I've ever built has been on a team. And I think that's always the way I would plan to do it going forward. There's just so many moving pieces and so much stress and so much just stuff going on early stage in a company that putting that all on one person is phenomenal and incredible for the people that pull it off. But I, I don't think I would have survived most of my companies if I didn't have a team to lean on. So that's, that's another big thing we look for. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of it, a lot of it comes down to just market position, what the opportunity looks like, what the competition looks like. Um, I love the pet industry when we were in it because one of the co-founders in pro pet owned a large kennel and rescue, and we were living the kind of headache day to day of like running. This is terrible and making QuickBooks bend and contort to the idea that clients are dogs and multiple dogs can belong to a person and we need to check in dogs, but we need payment from people and we need to track both of these. And like CRMs don't really support the idea that like one client can own another client. And like, there was just so many weird intricacies of that industry. That I was like, okay, yeah, no, there, there's a genuine legitimate pain point here. Um, same thing with like, we're very involved in a, in a startup right now that's doing some incredible stuff here in Ottawa in the realtor space where they're dealing with like the logistics of getting signs placed and distributed and put up, taken down, stored and everything. And it's like, okay, yeah, no, this, this is a weird industry where it's like, you need someone that can kind of go fetch signs, put them up, take them down, update them on a fairly regular basis. But this is not necessarily ultra high skill work for you to be doing, but there's a lot of logistics involved in making it happen and not a lot of technology that supports it. So that's one that we're, we're excited about. I think we all fall into, and I say we all in like Canada and the UK <laughs> fall into the trap of like the more traction, the better, which is infuriating for founders. Cause like at some point I have so much traction, I don't need investors. So what use are you to me? And I, I try to not fall into that trap, but I also find myself pulled in a, a pulled in that direction when we're, when we're vetting companies like, I, it's, it's way more interesting to see like, yeah, 10, 20,000 a month in revenue and a little bit of traction, even on like kind of broken beta versus yeah. A pitch deck that says in 12 months, we're going to go build this thing and launch it. That's yeah. yeah. For sure. <laughs> so obviously I, I've had, um, you know, I've been on both sides trying to sell, sell the idea, but also, uh, this time around, I'm happy to say that I have traction to show, um, which I think from a founder's point of view also changes your confidence in the way you're able to present it and and counter challenge when investors come, well, that won't work, but it will work because we're doing it, you know, <laughs> and this is the feedback we get and this is how we've overcome um, challenges along the way. So that has made a big difference for us as chip ourselves. Oh yeah. Um, I think there's, there's a great, sorry, there's a great quote I keep hearing come up recently of, and I, I'm going to misquote it, but it's something like someone with experience will never be afraid of someone with an opinion. Um, and it's like, uh, to me, that's kind of what traction arms you with of like, once you've shown, 
that users are doing something or customers are reacting a certain way, people can have all the opinions in the world they want of like, oh, they're never going to do that or people aren't going to adopt it this way. It's like, well, here, here's 100 users that are using it that way today and it barely works and they're figuring it out. So with a little bit of growth, we can find another thousand, 10,000 million that are, that are doing that. And I think that's honestly, it's one of the things that's really cool that's enabled by tech today is like you can get, you can get to those early prototypes. You can get to that stuff so much faster than even five years ago. Um, For sure. Yeah. I think even, even maybe two years ago, if I look at all the no code solutions that are available, um, you know, we're able to build something and put something together that uses third party tools, although it gives a feel of um, a seamless experience in, in a way that when I first started working with tech tools five years ago, we just couldn't do that. Um, yeah. You needed a developer to actually do the work, which brings me to my next question. Um, when I've spoken to potential investors or funders or advisors, there's, there's a definite, um, should the, the tech team be in-house or outsourced? Um, what are your thoughts on? <laughs> <laughs> I love this question. The developer journey. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, obviously this is like running an outsourced development company, this is something we run into a lot. And I'm going to say the answer really depends. Uh, and our recommendation is often, if you have a very strong technical founder within the company, building a team in-house makes sense. You have, and I will asterisk that with the technical founder needs to have also had experience managing technical teams and delivering technical teams. When you don't have a technical founder with that experience in-house, the money and time that I've seen get spent over and over and over again with a first time or second time non-technical founder trying to figure out how to hire developers, retain developers, put in process and project management to ship a product and is just so much on top of also having to nail product market fit, also having to nail um, fundraising and just general scale up. Like there's just, it's, it's a lot. Um, so I think in the instance where there isn't a really strong technical founder with experience doing that, I think finding an external partner can be a great solution. Uh, I think a lot of it also depends on what external partner you find and what the contract and engagement looks like. Um, one thing that I think we've seen over the kind of lifetime of Iversoft, and we've been at this now 12 years, um, and something that often seems very attractive to, um, outside companies or startups, but in practice becomes a bit of a challenge is a lot of early stage companies are looking for kind of fixed bid, um, fixed scope deliverables on paper. That's wonderful. Uh, like day one, write a crazy detailed spec, start building, and in four, six, eight months, deliver. The challenge is I have yet to see somebody get the spec right on day one. And with more user testing, with more kind of QA, with more just market research and time figuring it out, that spec evolves and shifts and moves a lot. And the more traditional kind of fixed bid project approach 
kind of falls apart at that point because everything becomes a trade-off of like, okay, well now the timeline is off. Now we need to do a change request for budget. Now we need to do like that cascades into a whole bunch of other things, depending on how the firm budgeted it. Um, it becomes complicated and where we've moved to, and like this is purely on our own experience. I think there's lots of other approaches has been more of the like, team augmentation, dedicated team approach, where it's like, here's is, here is your development team for a period of time, whether that's six, eight, 12 months. Um, and if you can keep the overhead and the markup low enough that it is comparable or competitive with kind of hiring in-house and the cost you would incur of trying to train and build systems and build structure, that can be very compelling. And you manage kind of sprints on a weekly or biweekly basis. And because you're not locked to like, oh, we locked this in at 150,000 and we, we have to protect our margin. Therefore, scope changes are a huge thing. Um, there's a lot more flexibility to take feedback from users, feedback from the founder and kind of pivot and adjust. It's a much more agile approach. I like that. I like when we see startups that are working with that kind of model, because if they've been kind of able to, at least in the early stages, been able to hand off some of the technical overhead of training and retaining really good development talent. And they're just focused on kind of shipping each sprint. And as long as they have enough visibility into the code that's being produced, the control and access of the kind of server infrastructure and the cloud infrastructure so that they know what they're getting, um, I think it can work really well. Unfortunately, we've done a lot of, a lot a lot of rescue missions where we've come in six, 12, 18 months down the road. And in some cases found that like there is no code. It's a bunch of like kind of animated mock-ups pretending to be development and people have been taken advantage of, or there's a lot of code, but you can tell it was like a developer that was rotated out every three weeks with somebody new. There's inconsistencies in language. There's just broken stuff all over the place. So like choosing the partner in that instance is critical um there are some phenomenal partners all over the world like not just in north america europe like there are some incredible incredible partners we've had clients where we we provide some of the technical leadership and project management oversight and work with entirely outsourced overseas teams and some of those projects have been some of the fastest highest quality projects we've shipped um, they've been amazing we've also seen the the equal kind of disastrous explode <laughs> on impact kind of experience. Yeah. Um, so nice. <laughs> yeah. So it really depends on the company. It really depends, I think on the complexity um, of the project. And I also think that not all technical streams are managed in necessarily the same way. Not all disciplines are managed in the same way. A lot of our clients at Iversoft, at least, um, have a ton of technical expertise in house, but they're very technical within kind of their domain. So in many cases, there our clients deal with like, you know, the server side and the website, and they're bringing our team in to augment the mobile side because they just don't want to spin up an entire mobile division. I think the same thing can be true for kind of the scale up startup size, not necessarily the early stage, but scale up of like focusing on the core technologies, you know, and finding partners to help augment with other pieces can be, can be very powerful and can be very compelling from a, um, investor side of things, as long as the budgets make sense. Uh, and that's where I think the like retainer model makes sense. If it's time materials at two, $300 an hour, then I don't think that's a great scenario. Um, and I don't generally recommend it for companies we work with or companies that we're, we're looking at investing in. So 
yeah, a little a little bit of judgment. There's there is no one answer. It really depends on the team, and it really depends on the product. Um, but both I've seen both situations be very successful. Okay, so I think probably for for startup founders, having that fixed price project because funds are limited is is what the attraction is. Um, you know, I've I've had a couple of fixed price projects and where the problem comes in is, is exactly what you're saying which is that we had a scope um i think sometimes it's the the language barrier when we've used foreign um developers in what we understand as obvious is not so obvious um nothing we, is obvious ever yeah. in, in software i mean, like I, I will, i'll jump in and say that as much as i would love to say things are obvious in common sense. Like you need to document it every like document it, mock it up, explain it over, explain it, say it again and again and again. Um, yeah. I've seen so many things go sideways because people are like, isn't it obvious it works that way? It's like, no, or maybe, but not obvious to the six people that are all equally kind of contributing to this. And unless you told them, they're all kind of making their own obvious assumption about how it should be built and how it should be executed. And you end up with like six slightly very different variants. And it's kind of like, having a whole bunch of different people build a bridge, but not telling them where it meets in the middle and just being like, well, it's obvious it'll connect. It's like, yes, but they all started at different times on different sides. And now we have like three bridges that don't meet in the middle and everyone's upset. And it's like, yeah, you got to, you just have to document that and communicate that and over communicate yeah. that. But yeah, communication and language barriers is, can be a very, very, very challenging one. So can you tell us what are your top, tips for if you're looking at outsourced um, uh, developers, what what are your top things to look for to ensure that you make the best decision with the budget and the resources you have available? Yeah, I, for me, a big one is understand the understand everyone's motivation on all sides. And what I mean by that is when you look at a fixed bid model, and, and part of why I struggle with it on, on kind of both sides. Like, let's say, let's say we come up with a scope for, for a project. We say it's 150,000. It's going to be done in five months. Um, we lock that in contract sign. Everything's great. You're happy because you think that's what you're, you're, you're getting at that point. That company is now working on the premise. Like they have 150 K and that time and their job, their project manager's jobs, their dev's job, everyone's job is a, to make you happy, but B to protect the profitability of that budget and that timeline. And therefore, when decisions are made and there's kind of maybe a right way, a fast way, and something in the middle, depending on where they are on project timeline and profitability, is going to be the North Star on how they make those choices. And they may not always be super forthcoming, even if they say they are with you as the client about those choices being made. And you don't necessarily have the visibility because ultimately the employees of that company have an obligation to have a profitable project and make sure that they uh, deliver on that side. That is, that is what keeps their jobs and keeps them in business. Um, from a motivation standpoint, I don't feel like that's aligned, right? I think there, I, I feel like you are immediately at odds. If you both want to ship something, you both want to see success, but there's not necessarily equal upside there. Mm. Whereas, I think on the retainer side of things, the risk is that there's potentially less motivation to hit a deadline, go quickly. Um, but if it's 
a retainer with kind of a rolling renewal based on performance and kind of happiness of the client. There's a lot of motivation to make the right decisions, keep momentum going, but also keep you involved in the conversation about what decisions are being made and why. And you can come to the team like, look, here's, we can build it right. We can build it fast. We can build it somewhere in the middle that like, we're going to pay for it later, but it'll work for the first 10,000 users. Um, and I think any situation that kind of helps align that motivation more, um, is better. I don't always love, um, a lot of people immediately default to like, well, then we'll do like an equity play with that organization. And I don't always love that situation. Um, largely because one company is carrying the salary side of it and one company is not. Um, and it potentially creates some weird conflicts of priorities and you can't fire them. <laughs> like <laughs> that, that, that's that, that, inherently becomes a problem. And part of what motivates the retainer to stay good is like, you have to keep impressing them and you have to keep delivering in order to kind of keep the contract going, keep things moving forward. If you don't, if you are like a 10, 20 or more percent equity owner in the business, they are married to you. And it is going to be very, very, very hard for them to get rid of you or change. And I, I don't think that's great. I don't think that's, I think you should always have the option if you're, if you're outsourcing the development to be able to move it. If, if it's not a fit, the other thing that I would really look for, and this is what something we've struggled with when we've tried to work with external partners, is as much as possible, and you usually can't get this up front, but once you kick off the project, get the names of your team. <laughs> yes. Find out who's working on your team. And not that you have to have them on a call every day. Like most most companies are not going to put their whole dev team in front of you all day, every day. But understand who's on your team. Understand from that organization, how long do their developers stick around? Um, because one of the biggest challenges to software development period is knowledge transfer and continuity of kind of development practices and, and documentation. And if you are working with a firm that has a retention rate of like three months and people are constantly cycling through, you're going to be paying for a ton of training and a ton of time of just onboarding people onto your project. You're going to suffer from a lack of kind of knowledge across the team. Um, and you're not going to see a consistent level of quality. I mean, we talked about this a little bit earlier on like video editing. Of like, If every week you're training a new editor on what you like, it's a pain. The same thing is true of software. So when we're looking at partners, we often do look at things like Glassdoor and try and reach out to some staff, creep their team a little bit. Do they hang on to people for a while? How or do people seem happy there? Um, it's a little bit harder with the like global international outsource overseas firms, but we've had, we've had a few weird experiences where I think we were given like three generic names. And over the course of like four months, you're like, your voice is different than it was two weeks ago. I know you, I know you have the same screen name. That is a completely different voice. Nope. Same voice. Like, okay. All right. We'll, we'll play this game. But like, we've seen that so many times. And I think that's one of the challenges that you have to avoid. And part of that is just get to know the people you're working with and understand their experience. And if someone's selling you on the idea that you're putting a senior developer on it, take a look at who that senior developer is. If they've got two years of experience out of school, they're probably not a senior developer. Um, don't be afraid to ask for things like what projects have you shipped? What have you done at scale? Um, I think that's one of the other challenging things you run into with a lot of shops is they're great at writing wonderful case studies, but not everyone in the company worked on that case study. So the people on your team, what have they done? What is their experience? What has this group 
been able to accomplish because that also speaks a lot to what you're going to kind of see as the results coming out of it. And it's no different than how you would hire your own team, right? You want to, if you're bringing it in-house, you want to hire people that have done scale-up, that have done a large launch or that have done, I don't know, if it's video that, well, I think in, in Chirp's case, that have experience talking to the social media platforms. Have they dealt with those APIs? Have they dealt with overcoming all of the weird hoops and crap that all the different platforms put up to make you a compliant partner? If they haven't, that's going to be a really steep learning curve for somebody the day you try and go turn all of that on. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so treat it treat it a lot more like that and ask a lot of good questions. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of sticking but changing to that track um, of yeah. thought, which is around getting to know your team members and your developers. What about, what do you think in terms of getting to know founders um, before you invest in them and before you you start getting involved with them? Where do you go and look? Do you do you have a sneaky peek on uh, LinkedIn to see Everywhere. what they like? <laughs> <laughs> Everywhere. On, like, if we're looking at partnering with somebody or if we're looking at investing something, we look at everything. Like, I want to know what you're putting out there. I want to know how well you're managing your brand. Um, in most cases, the early stage founders are going to be the brand champions for the organization. So if you've got a bunch of social that is just you drunk every weekend, or if there's a bunch of spelling errors on your profile, or if you are really inconsistent in your commitments or what you kind of post, you're like, I, if I've seen this all the time, like a post, like, I'm going to update my journey every week, a month later, one post, three months later, another post. And I was like, cool. Your consistency sucks. And I feel like that's going to follow through on a lot of other stuff. So there's, there's a lot you can learn when you look at the social profiles. And I think when you're, it's not, it's not a hundred percent, but I think it's, it's a good leading indicator for what they're putting out there and how well they will advocate for their companies. And if it's, if you're dealing with the founder that's doing the fundraising and they don't have you kind of swept up and excited in the vision, it's dead, right? Like it's, it's you, you feel that right away with the founders that have that kind of infectious energy and are able to just motivate a room and an army. Like that's the energy you need to attract really good talent, to leave stable, comfortable jobs, to come help build your mission, to convince investors to come on board, to convince early clients to become early adopters. And some of that comes through on social or it can, it's not that bad social will immediately kill it. But when you see great social and great marketing on social, that is absolutely a positive in indicator. That is a very helpful thing because you're looking and you're going, okay, your, your first job is not going to be trying to find a marketing intern to explain TikTok to you. It's going to be, you know how to do this. You're going to jump into this content and you're going to be pushing it. And I think that's amazing. Um, founders that pretend that they don't have to do that, uh, I don't think go very far. Absolutely. So one of the things we do at Chip is we, to help founders share that that vision and that journey is we interview them and we actually ask them, you know, if you think of so much work goes into a pitch deck, but it is only 10 slides. Um, and so we start <laughs> digging into the detail around each slide and sharing that and sharing that passion. I think for me as a startup founder um, in my previous iteration was that I am a solo founder, so I know that's something that you have it's said. It's a lot that. on your shoulders. I'm, <laughs> I'm not saying it can't happen. It's just a lot. I, I appreciate 
the absolute mountain that is on your shoulders doing it solo. And I have so much yeah. respect for it. Like it is, I, I just know I couldn't do it. I, I am, yeah. that is not me. That is insanely gutsy and strong. And I have so much respect for like that. that is, that's, it's huge. <laughs> so what I found though was there are a lot of investors who automatically discount a solo founder. Um, and so, Sorry. no, it's, it, I, I, I do understand. However, for me, the fact is I've been through two, two co-founders or three co-founders and I'm the only one still standing. <laughs> so how do I show you that commitment? How do I show you that grit and that problem solving that I will do whatever it takes? And so that was kind of where Chip was born was how do we yeah. take that to get investors to notice us? And so I think by sharing your journey on social, by sharing your big why, sharing your problem solving and doing it consistently on a month to month basis, you're giving so much insight into who you are and how you work that, yeah. um, you know, obviously using the chirp system can help to achieve that without spending hours creating content because you also don't want that from your founders. Um, so yeah, your, it's a weird your, balance. It is. It is an absolute weird balance. I spoke to somebody recently who apparently spent 22 hours a week creating content. <laughs> oh, I hope the return on that was worth it. I really do. I don't know. I don't know it could it be. Like, it, you can have exponential returns on good content, but I don't know. Yeah, that's, that is a lot of time. That's crazy. <laughs> so how do you go about creating enough content to stay visible and to start seeing those returns on your own um, socials? I don't. I suck at it. <laughs> and, like, I think this is this is part of why we met is I, like, for context, like, we met through Dan Martell's Elite Coaching Group. And part of why... I joined is I followed Dan for a very, very, very long time. He was a, he gave some incredible advice and feedback for us early days for ProPet software. And I've always been kind of blown away and impressed by what he does on social and how consistent he's been. I, I think I posted a screenshot a while ago of like, I have weekly or monthly emails going back to like 2013 in my inbox from Dan Martell wow. years, years he's been doing it. And like, I'm just impressed at the systems and the dedication to do that. And I want to get there. I'm not doing it today. I, I, I part of why I'm excited to like learn more about chirp and we're talking about different platforms because I recognize that there's a ton of value there. And I think Dan put it really well for founders in general. And we talked about it weeks ago. And that was as you build your company and you put everything into your company brand and you focus so heavily on that, if at some point you sell the company or you exit and then you go to do the next thing, guess what? <laughs> You're starting over again. Um, and I think I've fallen down that trap a few times and that we've built really powerful, really large brands for previous companies, but I've never really invested in building the personal brand and never really invested in kind of something that can carry forward and help make the next one easier or go faster. And so that's a lot of where my time is going right now is figuring out what that strategy looks like, figuring out what that time commitment looks like. How are the, what tools are out there, whether it be it AI or teams we can hire or services like Chirp that we can get involved in that help you have kind of disproportionate impact with your time and your energy. 
One thing that I think is often overlooked for fundraising founders, um, because a lot talk a big game, but I would say, I would say I have two or three that have done this well in all of the founders I've ever interacted with. And that is doing some kind of monthly newsletter, follow-up updates, whatever, to any investors that you've spoken to along the way that might be interested or might not be, but have said, yeah, keep me up to date, keep us in the loop. Investor updates, most founders suck at them. At best case, they're good at them for the first couple months, and then they kind of just drop off the radar and disappear. I've had a few that have consistently sent updates every month for like years, and it's been incredible. And there's I have so much confidence that if they came to the table and said, hey, hey, we're doing another round. Are you interested? I'd be like, yeah, let me let me know more. Let's talk about it. Because again, like they said they were going to do something. They did it. They showed me they were, they were doing it over a huge amount of time. That consistency, that commitment to self, that discipline, that says so much about their ability to execute and their ability to stay consistent. And I think that's something that often gets overlooked. Like the social side of things is great for growth, but there's also a nurture component to like the people you've already built relationships with just because it wasn't a fit today, because maybe you were too early, too early stage, maybe it wasn't a fit at the time for whatever they were investing in. But like, if you say you're going to stay in touch and you, and somebody says, yeah, like keep me up to date, put some time into those updates. Like, I know it was something I was guilty of too at Rockadel is like, we would go through periods where we were amazing at like really rich monthly newsletters to all of our investors and prospective investors and everything. And then there are also dark periods where we go probably three or four months and not update people properly. And it's something I'm very, very self-aware of now of trying to be way better of keeping stakeholders engaged and involved and informed because I know how much just from my own personal exposure, how much confidence that gives. There's a second school of thought out of there that like, just keep your head down, execute. I don't need to know what's going on. That's fine. I like yeah. to see the consistency. I think definitely. I think being consistent is unbelievably difficult. Um, yes. <laughs> whether, it's, whether it's sending an update, sending a newsletter, being consistent on social. And one of the things um, that counts against us, against us on social is that consistency in the eyes of the algorithm gods is uh, every day, not three times a week. That's still considered sporadic. Um, yep. So it's that consistency that we all struggle with. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you've met or talked to um, Kyle Voris yet um, no, through no, from no. the Elite Group. He's got the he's got they've got an incredible sales accelerator company. But one thing that we were having a really interesting chat about last week, um, he does a lot of LinkedIn content, and he said spent about probably. I think one or two years doing three posts a week, really rich, thought out, deep posts. He saw pretty mediocre growth and results from it. Changed strategies this year to doing three posts a day, smaller snippets, basic content, little bits of advice. And I think the first month he did it, he saw like a thousand percent growth on engagement. And the second month was like four or five thousand percent month over month engagement. And the numbers have gone through the roof. And he's like, it's crazy how slanted the algorithm is for consistent volume versus what I think some of us like to like hide behind of like, Oh no, I'm not, I'm not going to post multiple times a day. I'm going to, I'm going to do well thought out Shakespearean ask beautiful pieces. And the algorithm's like, go home. That's, that's not what yeah. this is for. 
Exactly. So um, one of the things that we've discovered is that um, it almost, and I say almost, doesn't matter what you post as long as you post every single day. Um, that's crazy. And, you know, we we you have to post for the algorithm and you have to post for the humans. But yep. ultimately, it's the algorithm that decides. The algorithm gets you the humans. Yes, exactly. So, um, so that's one of the things that we we always reiterate to founders or, or people clients that we work with is that it almost doesn't matter what you post. So stop getting hung up right. on creating Shakespeare, Hollywood production. Stop getting hung up on the quality of the video or the sound or the lights. Because actually, the most important thing is that you are out there posting every single yeah. day, um, and people are watching, uh, and and that's been very interesting to see. Two clients this week have come back and said one had two investors reach out to them. Um, that's awesome. Completely out the blue, and the other one has had two invest two investors who want to get in on a round that's almost closed, as well as potentially being acquired by one or two companies um, wow. which started those conversations. And that's just from the LinkedIn profile we've been building. That's amazing. So I have to ask, cause like we're, we're infinitely guilty of this at Iversoft at least. And then I think it took us eight months to publish some updates on our website. How are you guys doing at running and scaling your social given that your core offering is a social tool? <laughs> oh, Do you consume your own? your own product or is it kind of the we it's so it's we, yeah it is it is very very difficult um to stay consistent i think that's the number one thing because we get very busy sorting out the clients um and it's kind of what you alluded to earlier is that i've built multiple companies but always built the company's brand and not necessarily my own um and so this year i'm determined to start focusing on my own brand as well um one of the easy ways to do that is actually using podcasts. So you're still interviewing um, and it's getting into that rhythm of how do we take the content we're creating with clients and pushing that out on our own socials. So we are getting better at it. Um, we have the same problem, which is why we built Chirp the way we did. Um, but yes, uh, using the system when we yeah. use the system, it works perfectly. So <laughs> that's awesome. It's yeah, it's uh, it's always so funny seeing companies in different verticals that are kind of the last people that get to use their own product and their own tools. It's like, yeah, people ask us all the time. I'm like, why hasn't your website been updated? It's like because we're building like nine others, and all of our good talent is doing that, and we don't always have resources in house to do our own stuff, and which is unfortunate because like, I think similar to your social stuff, it's like, it's not a problem until it is right. It's, mm. it's not a big deal as long as everything's busy and as long as you're growing like crazy. But the second you're not, it's the first thing everyone's looking at is like, all right, where's our, where's our content? Where's our engine going? Yeah. It's like, Oh yeah, no, we should have uh, probably put some more time and energy into that. <laughs> yeah. So, so for, for us, what we do is we do pod podcasts and then we, we clip it up and we do, uh, we've got fireside chats at lunchtime um, that, that are booked. Nice. And that's quite nice because we get to show show and tell at the same time. Yeah, I love it. That's amazing. Yeah. How, how are you guys finding video performing across the different platforms? Is it is it kind of still the go-to for engagement or are you seeing, seeing different stats at this point? You know what? The To see 
the engagement in clicks and comments is still um, what people want to see. However, what I find is that social has got a lot of lurkers. Um, and so you can see your video uh, engagement going up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so video is definitely king. So there's a there's a stat, I think it's Daniel Priestley that gave it that you need to spend seven hours with someone to feel a connection and to feel like you you can trust them and do business with them. Video speeds that up phenomenally. So if you have got consistently got video going out every day, it feels like we have a relationship already after having seen seven to 10 of your videos. I get a feel for who you are. I read your body language. Even if I'm not listening to your videos, I, I can see the type of person you are and get a real feel um, because we know words are only 7%. And so even though I'm scrolling past, whether I stop or not stop, I right. have made a connection with you. So videos definitely outperforms. Um, across the platforms, it takes a long time on YouTube to get traction. Um, the one that is blowing everyone away at the moment is TikTok. Uh, yeah. You can grow to 100,000, 200,000 people in 90 to 120 days on TikTok. Nice. What we haven't established yet is how engaged those followers stay. Is it a vanity vanity metric or is it an audience that you can really tap into to grow your business? That's what we're still, uh, the jury's still out on that one. I love it. Do you, do you find a lot of resistance from founders you guys talk to when you're talking about kind of social strategy and content like that? What is, what is that conversation and journey like for you guys at this point? So that's an interesting question. Um, what I find people are most scared of is posting every day. <laughs> they, it scares the daylights out of them. They are worried about being irritating. Nobody ever goes, how do I make sure that I get seen? Like, what if I don't post and someone, the important person doesn't see me? The question or the worry is always, what if I come across as irritating? So that that's often the first hurdle to overcome is posting consistently daily. Can I ask if that's like, is that universal experience for you? Is there anything that uh, I'm trying to think of how to like phrase this? Is that, is that everyone you interact with? Is that a kind of UK or Canadian thing? Do you see that from American clients? Like, cause that's, yeah. that's one thing I, I think, I see as a stark contrast be, uh, between maybe some of the U.S. startups we work with and the like Canadian startups. The Canadian startups are like I will earn every view I get, and the Americans yeah. are like we are conquering the world. Let's go, everyone, get on board. And it's like <laughs> okay, there's a slightly different philosophy here, and I like it. But yeah, yeah are, are, do you Definitely. see that play out in the in the yes. kind of self consciousness of social media? Yep, definitely. So I would say the the UK market is is more concerned about that. Um, they're also slower decision makers. Um, Interesting. And more cautious. So what we find is that often uh, women and UK markets they will start off slower. So we'll do more graphics um, posts with say ten videos if i can convince them so once every third day um, okay on the platform and then we've just had one client go we need more video after not wanting video um and whereas, I love it. <laughs> whereas i think because they start to see 
the engagement comes from the videos, not yeah. the other posts. People don't want to read anymore. Um, and then yep. when I look at the, the US market and Canadian market, let's go, let's go. We need it faster. We need more of it. Um, can we record every week? And how quickly can you get the content out? And can we post 10 times a day? So wow. there is yeah. definitely a, a big contrast. Um, but I think with our UK clients, they're starting to see the value and they're starting to pick up. So they are standing out. Um, the ones that are actually. So I feel like there's a huge competitive opportunity there. If, if there's, if you can find the brands that want to lean into that and are willing to mm-hmm. push because the algorithm is going to reward that behavior regardless. And I think yeah. like we often see like it's, there's underlying localization elements where the algorithms do try and promote what appears to be, or what is local content. It's part of why we have, we're a fully remote company, but we have physical office addresses in a number of cities across the country because we couldn't actually break into like local SEO without it. We needed to actually have some kind of physical presence that we could kind of tag ourselves to and put a kind of, I don't know, stake in the ground that says we're here. And I think, I think to some sense there there's bias in the algorithm on the social side, but I mean, I'm, way out of my depth of expertise at this point. So I think there's lots to learn there, but I think that's, it's really cool seeing those trends, trends come out. Are you, when you guys are bringing clients on, are you kind of global at this point? Where are you seeing the most adoption come on for Chirp? Um, We are pretty much global. So we are, it's kind of 50, 50 UK. We've got one client in Italy at the moment. um, And then the other half are, are US and Canada. Um, so we are busy building our own app at the moment, which will, uh, explode our scalability and then hopefully we'll have a complete global presence. Um, at the moment though, we, we are focused on English speaking countries. The reason being is that we use AI transcription, um, and video editors. So we're a little bit limited in, uh, our capacity. Do you do you speak any other languages? Only Afrikaans, um, which is from. Oh, South cool! Africa. <laughs> that makes but sense. It's the only place it's spoken. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a limited market, but still, still interesting. That's Not awesome. Particularly useful. <laughs> hey, hey, it's one more than I've got, so that's awesome. Yeah, so I, in Canada, do you not speak French? <sighs> I speak enough French that I could survive if stranded somewhere, but not enough that anyone's going to be impressed that I'm trying. Um, yeah, I, I speak it well enough that if I try, people immediately yeah. switch to English out of kind of pity. So I get the like, Perfect. yeah, the, the half smile of like, well, you gave it a shot, but let's let's do this. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, Brilliant. Well, I think we've covered loads of information today and I have absolutely loved every minute of chatting to you. I feel like we could do another 10 podcasts, which uh, I'll get those dates booked in with you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But thank you so much, Graham. I would love to know how can people get hold of you? um, What would you like? Where would you like them to contact you? Yeah, this was awesome. It's so much fun. Um, Let's definitely do another one. I think there's so many cool things that we can kind of look at and explore. I am on all of the social things at Graham Barlow um, and have a site coming up in the next week or so at grahambarlow.com. So check me out there. You can get in touch, um, obviously through iversoft.ca as well. If you're looking for um, 
technical support or development, uh, but always happy to chat with founders, other investors, uh, and any cool projects that are going on. Thank you Amazing. so much for having me. This was awesome. Amazing. You are most welcome. Thank you very much. That's Leanne Scott and Graham Barlow on the CHIP podcast. I will push stop. There we go. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. That was awesome. That was awesome.